What's up? It's Delaney, and I'd love to invite you to become an honorary co-host of the Self-Helpless Podcast. Do you want to pick episode topics and guests? Done. Want to surprise your loved ones with shout-outs on the show for a birthday, project launch, a much-needed divorce? Whatever you're up to, would love to be a part of the celebration. Get your favorite and least favorite quotes featured on the podcast, submit questions for our special guests, and find lots more new features and surprises at patreon.com slash selfhelpless. You'll also get added to our patron insider email list to easily redeem rewards via a quick email reply because we know hanging out on Patreon isn't everyone's thing. You can also opt out of emails if you prefer to be a silent supporter of the show. And don't worry, we do not Scrooge McDuck these contributions. 100% of proceeds go directly to operating expenses that make this weekly podcast possible and available to all. Learn more at patreon.com selfhelpless or simply click the link in this episode's description. Thank you for helping me fill the void of being the last standing host of the Self Helpless Podcast. Thank you so much. I'm no good at taking good advice And I'm self-careless, so don't tell me twice That lately I've been so stuck in my head That I forget just about everything my therapist said Maybe I'm self-helpless Maybe I'm self-helpless Maybe I'm self-helpless Maybe we are all self-helpless Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of the Self-Helpless Podcast. I'm Delaney Fisher and we have a phenomenal guest here today. Heidi Rain is here. Heidi specializes in addiction and codependency. She's the author of Codependent Attachment Personality Patterns, and she basically helps people heal from trauma and build healthy relationships. And we cover so much in this episode. We talk about the nature of addiction and how it goes hand in hand with manipulation, lying, gaslighting, and how to recognize those things, what it looks like when you're trying to control or fix someone's addiction, um, and what to do instead, and how codependence itself is an addiction, and how all of this is, you know, these are all coping mechanisms for trauma. This episode with Heidi was fascinating. I mean, if you're finding yourself in a pattern that you no longer want to be in, you've recognized the pattern, and you keep getting the same result, and you're like, what? what's going on here? I need to do something differently, but you're not exactly sure why you keep getting yourself into similar situations. Um and you're, you're just ready for a different result, please tune into this episode. Heidi also mentions that you don't have to resonate with being in a relationship with someone who has a substance issue or even have one yourself in order for this information to be very, very helpful. So although we're talking about codependency and addiction as an example for how codependency can show up, it can also show up in, in other ways. Um, so... A lot of you will probably be excited about this. Um, if you've been listening recently, we have been sharing a quote that we really love. Um, and the quote uh, is something like, um, you know, instead of asking yourself how much you can tolerate, ask yourself how good you can let things get. And it's a quote that I actually heard on Heidi's podcast. So Heidi is the person that shared that quote that we have all been really loving on this show. Um, and so look, we know we know here at self helpless you know we love quotes we love great analogies we love juicy personal examples and like real life uh honest practical tips and this episode is stacked with them and heidi and i discuss some of the different styles of codependency as well and what that can look like in relationships the difference between expectations and standards 
in a relationship, the cycle of addiction and codependency, like if you grew up in it and then you find yourself in relationships that mirror those things and how the hell that happened, all of that. Um, so before we get into this discussion, I do want to read a quote that was submitted by one of our patrons over at patreon.com slash selfhelpless. This was submitted by Alan and it says, love yourself so much that when someone treats you wrong, you recognize it. And that quote is attributed to Rena Rose. Um, wow. What a, what a perfect quote for this episode that coincides with this episode. Thank you so much for submitting that Alan. I feel like, um, Heidi actually mentioned something in this discussion that reminds me about this of like, even when people don't know they're in a codependent pattern of some kind or a codependent relationship, they at some point hit this wall of knowing that they need something different, knowing that they deserve something better, knowing that something is off and something needs to change. And I think that is an interesting part of self-love because you might think that you are practicing a lot of self-love but then you're also kind of in a, a harmful pattern. And so I think it's something where you don't even have to to know that um, you don't even have to know that it's self-love that's come, coming up front for you. Sometimes self-love looks like you've hit a wall and you've had enough and you need you need something different or new. Um, and so, yeah, Heidi kind of explains what that what that might look like for people. So. Thank you so much for submitting that quote. If you want to get um, your quote read on the podcast, you can submit over at patreon.com slash selfhelpless. There's a lot of other rewards over there as well. You can submit topics and guests for consideration. You can vote on topics uh, for the show. Um, submit shout outs that get read on the podcast for yourself, for your, for your loved ones, so we can celebrate you. And uh, just all kinds of good stuff. Basically, you're like a virtual co-host. You have a lot of influence over the content of the show and the things that actually get read you know, verbatim on the show and would love to have you over there. And one more thing before we get into it, I do have an email list called The D-List. It's totally free. I share all kinds of goodies with you, uh, different media and gig opportunities, private podcast episodes about unique career paths and kind of finding your, your sweet spot with meaningful work that you enjoy. And just, you know, I share other like fun happenings, special events and invites. I'd love to have you over there. If you're interested, you can find it on my website, DelaneyFisher.com, or you can just click the link in this episode's description and it'll take you over there. Um, again, it's totally free. All right, everybody. Here is my conversation with Heidi Rain. Heidi, thank you so much for being here today and on your birthday of all days. I know. And I I, I can't think of a better way. I, I This is the best gift to be able to come talk with you, share if it resonates. I mean, how lucky am I that I get to do this on my birthday? Oh my gosh, you're the best. I've, I've quoted you several times on this podcast already. So I've been very excited uh, about today's episode. Um, can we just start off? Like, would you mind just sharing a little bit about your professional background and any personal connection you have to the work that you do? Sure. So I, you know, I didn't start off to be talking about dysfunction and addiction. It was, it'd probably be the last thing that I ever thought I would be talking about because I cared a lot what people thought. And so I started my professional journey trying to just be like a ladder climber and achiever and business and all that kind of jazz. But, you know, so and it looked okay outside looking in, but obviously, um, as I started working more in relationships and I started like mainstream. So do you remember, uh, back in the day, a show called millionaire matchmaker? 
yes. with uh, Patty Stanger was on that show. So I, yeah. I didn't work with her, but I worked in exactly the same kind of, I, I worked, I lived in Los Angeles. I had a building, you know, a job at this cushy, like matchmaking company. And I spent all my time teaching masculine feminine ideas, how to catch them and keep them. I, I did a lot of, you know, you had on your show, the guest, Greg, who, uh, who wrote, uh, he's just not that into you. So a lot oh, of my yeah. coaching was Greg about Greg. that. But mm-hmm. as I realized, I'm like, man, I'm working with all these people. They're high achievers. They have a lot of money and a big checklist of all the things they're looking for in a relationship. What is the real struggle? And as I was like, what, how do I answer that best? That question? I was like, oh, well, that's me. I'm here, super successful, you know, outside looking in, look like I have everything, but behind closed doors, I'm scared of being left in my relationships or only want to be with people who really don't want me, you know, mm-hmm. so there's no, no fear of rejection there. Or, you know, I, I wonder why all these things show up intimately, but career-wise don't seem to manifest. And I got to the root of that. And I was like, okay, I guess everything I thought I escaped as a kid, which was addiction, narcissism, growing up in an abusive household, everything I thought I'd escape and overcome showed up in my love life. And then I, so I got underneath the hood and I was like, I got to figure this out. And that's how all this deeper level of work, self-help was like, because everything else, honestly, this masculine feminine energy teaching you what lipstick to wear or what, you know, what to say on a date is like putting a bandaid on a flesh wound when you have significant um, relationship trauma. And that's what growing up in addiction or what the narcissist is, it's relationship trauma. So, you know, I, I, that in my heart, I didn't want to end up here, but my life led me here. Wow. It's, it's interesting. I I had this question for you kind of later on in, in the discussion, but since you mentioned it, why, what is it about the cycle of addiction in that way, where you see the hardship of codependency and addiction growing up? But then you wind up in those situations as you get older, as an adult, you almost think like, you know what it looks like, you'll stay away from it. You've seen how difficult it is. Why do you think that cycle repeats itself? I'd love to hear your perspective on that. This is an amazing question. So everybody's cycle is a little bit different and it's based on whatever attachment issue they acquired as a result of the relationship they grew up in. Okay. Mm. I know that sounds complex, but it's really not. Let's say you, you know, I, for me, I grew up in, in an alcoholic environment where I got my uh, sanity and, and a little love from being a fixer and a controller, which is one of the different personality patterns that I've identified. And so I'm I'm running around, I'm trying to fix my dad, I'm dumping out bottles of alcohol, putting him back, you know, I'm, I'm doing everything I can do to get him to choose me or see how he's hurting me. And somehow I get the idea that my value as a human being is associated with how much I can help another human being. Uh, my sense of pride comes from my ability to fix. And so that works really well when you go into your life for fixing things and helping people, but you tend to subconsciously attract the wounded bird. And that's a pattern that you get sucked into and a fixer needs a victim. So that's the match made in hell, these two couples. So you will inadvertently attract somebody who needs rescued and saved. Even though you say you don't want that. You know, I, don't, I don't want somebody to be as strong as I am. I want somebody to be as with it as me. You know, I, I just want somebody, I hear that all the time, mm-hmm. but then it wouldn't allow you to enact that cycle if you pick somebody that was healthy. So until you heal, that's the cycle you're in. Same thing with controlling. If you, if you got all of your codependency roots are in controlling and you had to be the 10 year old going on 40 
in your household and you were responsible, super responsible for everybody and everything, you won't want that. You'll grow up and you'll be like, you'll have rescue fantasies. Someday the night's going to swoop in and save me. And you want that. But subconsciously, that's not, that's not what you're attracting. You're attracting a pleaser, a person who's like, well, tell me what to do. And you're like, I don't want to have to tell you what to do. Just, just do it. <laughs> but so in order to understand the cycle, you have to understand what pattern, what cycle you're in. Codependency isn't like a one way. And so many people get, it gets a bad rap where people are like, oh, you're weak, right? You need approval. You don't know what to do. And that's not codependence. That's an ass. That's one part of it, you know, but that's not what that really is. And I feel like so many people misunderstand it. And so they don't identify as it. And then they can't work on it. Oh my gosh. This is going to be such a fucking juicy episode. I'm so excited. I, I have so many questions for you, but before we get into all of that more, can we talk about, you know, what is codependency really? And what is this relationship between codependency and addiction, which is a big focus that you have in your work? Um, and then we'll we'll go from there. Okay. So what is codependency? Codependency is a way to survive, thrive, connect, or cope when you're born into a family of dysfunction. So it's a way to survive. It's a way to get love or quit from being hurt. It's a personality strategy. Mm. That's what codependency is in my mind. Mm. Um, so I see it as... I had these uh, invented these eight different patterns. Uh, well, I've, I didn't invent them. They they sh were shown to me through all the thousands of people that I worked with. I was like, oh, you're you're a controller, you're a withholder, you're a clinger, you're a fixer. I could see these patterns, which are all codependent patterns. So everybody's flavor of codependency is different. It's like codependency is ice cream, but it's got a million. It's got eight flavors. Um, so it's a way to function in dysfunction. I'm born myself. I'm born knowing my real value. I don't have to earn anything. I don't have to navigate anybody's bullshit. I just born, you know, ready to go. And then I come out of the womb, you know, if you yeah. can see this, you can see the podcast, you know, I'm coming I love out, the demo that you're doing, <laughs> you know, and I look around and I'm like, you know, looking around trying to say what's what, you know, and I'm like, oh, this is who I need to be in order to be okay. And even if you're not born into it, you marry into it and you start the marriage one way. You come in confident, positive, uh, strong, and then you go, well, this isn't working. Who do I need to be in order for have you love me or just be okay? That's codependency. Oh my gosh. I've never heard it described as a coping mechanism for dysfunction or like a personality exactly. strategy. That is That simplifies it so well. Um, because for me, it's been like this vague thing of like, ah, what does it exactly look like and how does it show up and all that? Could you explain the different styles or patterns you've seen of codependency and, you know, what you've witnessed through your work? I'd love to. Get yeah, there, there are. Sure. Of course there are eight of them, but I'll just explain a couple. So what I've come mm -hmm. up with is there are eight patterns and five criteria for each pattern. Mm -hmm. So it's a lot, but but there's a test people take and they can see, you know, and we can, you know, Great. share that if you want to. Yeah. But I think I'll just share one with like a withholder. Okay. So a withholding pattern, let's say you're born into a family where you're a highly sensitive person. You you're an empath. You can feel things. Um, you know, you, you notice you take in more than most people, but you're born into an environment that doesn't value that or punishes you for it. And mm -hmm. so it's either you know, smacked out of you or talked out of you or smothered somehow. And you learn that exposing yourself in any way is dangerous. So I want you to think of a withholder like a turtle. There's like a hard shell 
but it's very gooey inside, you know, and it pokes its head out and comes back in. So the behaviors of a withholder are, I get involved in relationships with you. I want you to be with me, but as soon as you start to get too close to me, I do distancing techniques. I invent fights with you. I figure out what I don't really like about you and start honing in on that thing so I can keep safe. I want to frame it so you like me more than I like you. So I don't have anything to lose. There's a binge strict element, binge restrict element with a withholder. And in all elements, they tend to have eating eating disorders as well, um, where I'm, I'm eating all and then I'm withholding relationships are the same way where it's like, I want to be with you every second. And then all of a sudden, I don't want, I don't want to be with, I want to isolate and be alone. So it's very hot and cold. It's very in or out. And they tend as a withholder, when you ask them how they feel, they say, I think I feel because they don't know how they feel because everything is intellectualized in the psychological shredder. So before they emote a feeling, they run it through the psychological shredder and they judge it. And they're, so they're, they're just in their head all the time. They're overthinking, overanalyzing. A little bit like a perfectionist yeah. pattern would be as well. Yeah. But you know, a perfectionist is a, is a lot more rigid in their expectations for other people. Withholders don't have any expectations for other people because they're like, you're going to disappoint me. So what? So I'm just going to stay over here because I already know the other shoe's going to drop. So, okay. So they're kind of like, I'm going to kind of hurt you before you hurt me or reject you before you reject me. So, in a sometimes way. that's a tactic, but here's what happens. Yeah. Withholders almost always get into a relationship with a clinger and that's another pattern. Oh. And so what these two do is they do the dance of dysfunction where one's withholding and one's clinging. And I love you. You're the best thing that's ever happened to me. And, you know, I want to be with you. And this person starts to get like, well, you're smothering me. Where are you going? Uh, and does a distancing technique, like hurts them, you know, throws a wrench in the plan, tests them or whatever. Then this person goes, well, no, screw you. I'm going to go away. And then this person turns into the clinger and the other one turns into the withholder. So they're constantly switching roles in this endless loop of dysfunction. Oh, I want you. I don't want you. Chase yeah. me. Don't leave me. I hate you. Don't leave me. Come back. Where are you going? You know, it's just like you break up 500 times. Okay. And so you, how... you call them twin flame. You call yeah. them your twin flame. It's not. It's a toxic twin flame. <laughs> right. It's right. Flame. It's just traumatic. Um, yeah. Well, what you're saying is like they both kind of have the same characteristics depending on what the dynamic is looking like. So how would somebody know if they're a clinger or a withholder, if they can kind of look like they're both? Well, clinger, a clinger will come in hot. Okay. Okay. From, from the get-go, they're overshare. Uh, they're the one that you know their whole entire life story before you. it's five minutes in. Uh, okay. They tend to, a clinger trusts everybody and believes everybody and uh, wants to be, um, wants to be picked so badly that they just throw themselves out there. And a withholder is never going to be that person. That's why a, 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 cling, a withholder needs a clinger because their withholder is never going to put themselves out there first, mm -hmm. right? Withholders mm -hmm. aren't going to go out there and say, put themselves out. So they, but they appreciate somebody that does, you know what I mean? Because they're, otherwise it would never get done for them. Okay. So yeah. they have to attract that dynamic. And then when they're in there, they get to feed off each other. So it's codependent is codependent. It's not your codependent, but your partner's not. It's it's a codependent relationship. Co is two. So if you are codependent, so is your partner. Uh, they just have a different flavor of your personality pattern, the opposite spectrum. So everything is like on a spectrum of light and dark, and so are these patterns. I know it's very complex, right? But this is so it's good. Not, 
but I, it's such a complex topic that it's yeah. hard to simplify, but I, I try to do that the best that I can. No, this is great. So like, is everybody codependent in some way or are some people, they really are like, they're right in the middle of that spectrum and they don't struggle with these codependency patterns in, in their relationships. Hey, I really, I love that. Cause I, I really believe that when we say like everybody's codependent, everyday codependence, you know, we're all codependent. I think what it does is it, uh, is it, it's hurtful to a whole group of people who are codependent because of trauma they experienced as kids. Mm. So I would rather get back to the original definition of codependence, which is a, a coping mechanism to trauma. Yeah. Um, yeah. Not a watered down, I'm a people pleaser. It, it goes beyond that. Okay. Yeah. You're a people pleaser, but are you a people pleaser where you constantly live in repressed rage? Because, you know, so then maybe, yeah, it's, it, it's, it's not like everybody's like that. There's a reason you're this way. And because we're not willing to enter the cave, then we don't do the work. We don't do the work when we say, well, everybody's like that. No, everybody's not. There are healthy people in the world who grew up with love that was mirrored back, who had their needs met, who had healthy parents that were firing on all cylinders that went through the stages of development with no detours. They went through dependence with no detours. They had a loving, caring parent who met their needs. They weren't sleep trained out of their lives or told not to need me or hidden in a bed, you know, they were hurt. I mean, they had their needs met. Then they went through independence just fine. Nobody wanted to smother them or which parent was jealous of them or hurt them. Independence was great. They were allowed, didn't have a fearful hovering parent. They had a normal parent. And then they were able to go straight to interdependence. So it went from dependence to independence to interdependence. And they're right in the middle interdependences. I'm not, I'm all the spectrum. It's okay. I'm not hung up in one extreme, but people who grow up in dysfunction, take a pit stop to codependence in between those stages of development. Mm. So they go dependent, codependent or independent codependent. <laughs> so they have to go back and rectify all that. Hey, where in the dependency phase with my parenting, that's what I get to do is take people on the journey. When did this originate so we can get to the root of all that and and change the narrative right I you know? love how you explain things you have such great analogies and I like listening to your podcast such great everyday examples so I really appreciate how you break down such complex things into like tangible um ideas actions all that stuff so I just I just wanted to share that with you um thank you I so with the withholder, since we're using this example, the withholder and the clinger, what would a healthy dynamic look like between those people if they're healing themselves? What does that like normal kind of give and take look like in a relationship? Do you have a friendship in your life that is not weighted by needing their approval or being afraid they're going to leave you? Do you have a friendship like that in your mind that that person is stable and consistent and you get to be you? And they get to be them and you can disagree. You're free to disagree. You know, you differ, but you never worry. They're going to hate me or they're going to leave me. Do you have somebody like that? Mm. Oh yeah. That's what love feels like. Yeah. That's oh. what love feels like. That's what healthy feels like. But as soon as we get into an intimate, these two main fears, you're going to hate me or you're going to leave me. Some people call that rejection or abandonment, but I just simplify it. You're going to hate me. Or you're going to leave me. Right. And, and then I go into this mental gymnastics. It's interesting because 
my initial reaction, and I, I'm doing like my own codependency work and stuff right now is my initial reaction is aren't friendships supposed to feel different than other relationships, whether it's with family, romantic partners, all that. But you're saying like, if there's one person in your life where you feel that safety with, that can be a template for all of your other relationships. Now, I'm not a religious person by any stretch of the imagination, but but Jesus is a pretty good example of just, you know, uh, about this dynamic. And he kind of, and, and his biggest claim to fame is I'm your friend. Okay. Mm-hmm. If you, you got a friend in Jesus, you know, if you look if right. you look around and you see, okay, what's Jesus? Well, he's your friend. I can talk to him, I can tell him anything, you know, for people that subscribe to that sort of thing. Right. He's not, they're not fearing being left or, you know, not loved. Right. And so if, if that's the template. And that's that's the spiritual template. That's the highest template. Why wouldn't that translate into every other experience in your life? That energy. If that's yeah. the mothering energy of the whole thing. Yeah. Love and acceptance. Then why would my intimate relationship be different? Yeah. The only thing different between an intimate partner and a friend is that you fuck them. Right. <laughs> right. Okay. That, if that's you're lucky. It. You're... There is no, if you're lucky, maybe <laughs> every Tuesday. Okay. Like, I mean, I don't know. 6.30 p.m. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Before, before <laughs> things get kind of like rough. Before dinner. I mean? So listen to this. Yes. My daughter, my daughter, we went on a cruise and she told, uh, we wanted some time alone. And she went and told our friends that mom and dad have alone time. And when they go up, they play fireplace and weird music, <laughs> like meditation music. And she did it. She, she was like, wah, 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 you know, like sounding the music. She was like, it's creepy as hell. You know, she's nine. I was mortified, but like, she's not wrong. I'm teaching her yeah. about intimacy. That's great. Right. You know, right. you like the candles and put the fireplace on at least, honey, raise your standards right. for when you get out into the world. Yeah. That will stick with her for the rest of her life. <laughs> she will. Um, no, that's, oh my God. It's so funny. There's a quote you said on your show. We've mentioned it a lot. Um, and I don't know if it's a quote of yours or from somebody else that you like, but it's something of the, of the, along the lines of instead of asking how much you can tolerate, ask yourself how good you can let things get, which is such a good quote. Uh, I feel like it's just a really like just drop kicks you in the kneecaps. You know, that quote, it's, it kind of calls you out because it kind of implies that we're the ones in our, our own way of our own happiness. So what is the origin of that quote and what does it mean to you? How does it relate to the, the codependency work? I, it's so hard to tell where the origin is because when you yeah. you meld merge all these things, but I and I could be wrong, but I think that when I first started this journey of like enoughness, one of my favorite mentors on the path was Janine Roth, mm. and maybe in one of her books or one of her sayings, she was talking about this concept, or in one of my adult daughters of alcoholics books, it was talking about letting ourselves have more. I'm not sure, but I know it's something that I've felt so viscerally at my core that I withhold from myself. Mm. You know, I I don't even heat up the spaghetti. I eat it out of the fridge with my fingers and I put, and that's, that's an example of like, are you, do you deserve, like, what is this Right. in every area of our lives? What are we settling for? How good can you let it get? We're afraid to ask for more. We're afraid to be that person mm. that isn't grateful for what they have and is not humble or, you know, too big for her bitches. Who the hell do you think you are? Uh, the shoe's going to drop if you want more. Just wait. 
as soon as you want more, what you have is going to be taken. We have so many scripts and stories around that. Yeah. Yeah. And as you know, somebody who struggles with, you know, these codependency patterns, what happens when the, like your external reality does kind of confirm those fears for you? What if you do have things taken away from you? What if something does fall apart? Do people with, you know, who struggle with codependency have a harder time getting over those humps because it's just like confirming this script and fear they've had? They do. They absolutely do because a codependent believes they're in control of those things. So they double down. But when you're healed, you understand that's the nature of being inside of life. Mm. But when you're codependent, you don't know that. You think you're in control of everything and everything's your fault. So yes, uh, you get something and then you lose it, right? And you're codependent and you go, see, I shouldn't have wanted it. I should have been grateful for what I had. I shouldn't have done that in the first place. You start the loop, the judgment loop. But when you're healed, you go, ah, to be expected. Oh my God. Such is the cycle yeah. of life. Right. What is the new thing coming in? It's like you, you don't have, you're not, you understand and work with the laws of life instead of your own inadequacies in your mind. It's a oh big switch. God. Yeah. I'm resonating with this so much. <laughs> I'm just like, I'm trying to take it in and also like be present for this discussion because, um, I have really, I have been really feeling that like this past year, just, you know, going through some obstacles and stuff immediately was like, I'm being punished for wanting more for myself. You know, I'm being punished for going after certain dreams or going after certain goals. Like, see, I can't do that. You know, I shouldn't have done that. I'm questioning all of my, all my choices and, you know, professionally, like it's just a, it's just a big spiral instead of saying like, shit happens in life and it doesn't mean anything about you. You can just move on and move forward. And it can be a lesson that you learn that you take, you know, you take with you to the next step. Um, and so I just, I haven't realized like how much codependency has impacted me in all areas. Could you speak to um, how codependency can show up? Maybe not even in romantic relationships, but with work and accolades and, you know, friendships, what does that actually look like in our day to day? Just like what you said. So you're a comedian. I have been, and you yes, know one of my many jobs. <laughs> okay. Yes. I love that about you. They're like, and it's, I think it says on your website, I don't know what I'm going to be doing in five years. So fuck off. Like, I, I don't know, you know, like this is what I'm doing now. So right. let's go. But you know, like I look at comedians and I think to myself, you've, there's gotta be an element of you. That's like an emotional state mm. where you're like, I, I either we thrive on the rejection or it doesn't matter. Or I'm like bulletproof or whatever, but there's something about in comedy where you have to have such an element of belief that you are actually funny, that you mm -hmm. possess this one skill that every no is just a taste issue. It's not an issue of your worth. It's not an issue of who you are as a person. It's a taste issue, right? If we and that's how we can feel really competent in one thing. Oh, well, you don't you don't like these bags that I made? Oh, it's a taste issue. If I'm not healed in that area of codependence, I'm gonna say, you think I'm stupid. You think I you think this is terrible. You think I'm terrible, right? Not this isn't your taste. If we're in a relationship, mm -hmm. same thing. If somebody rejects you, we don't say we say what's wrong with me instead of oh, I'm not this person's taste. They have a different taste. Right. So how you know is where you are still unhealed. If you don't believe in your capability or your worth, that's the place when you go into the next thing where this thing will show up again. So it's not like you get over it. 
it's your level of demon shows up in the next game of life and the next level, like you're leveling up in your video game. Right. So for me, I knew I was working on my codependence, like, okay, in business, I was running, you know, doing business consulting and didn't have any business doing it. I just worked my way up. I proved myself in that enough. So then I felt like, okay, I'm confident, confident, but other areas of our lives where we get to this point and we say, I can just show up as me and you rejecting me does not send me into a tailspin where I internalize your rejection to the point that it paralyzes me from going on forward. Mm. Okay. Right. So like you're trying something new, right? You go in, you try something new. You're already going in with this belief somewhere. You have to be already possessing this belief that I don't know if I'm going to, this is okay for me. I don't know if I'm going to do this because all you're doing, it's not other people that are taking you out. It's the confirmation yeah. that you already have that's taking you out. And then somebody gives you the confirmation and you're like, oh, there, shit, there it is. So right. it's an inside game of having a conversation with you that isn't about how good you are at something, isn't about how much you have to prove your value. It's just that because you want to do it, you get to do it. What would that be like? If everything wasn't approving or just like, you know, my whole business now is like nothing to prove. You know, if, if I had like Nike's just do it, I'm like Heidi Rain, nothing to prove. If you had nothing <laughs> I love to it. prove yeah. to anybody, you know, right. what would you be doing? Like if you had nothing to prove and they rejected you, what would that, why would that matter to you? Right. If you had nothing to prove and you wanted to write a book and nobody picked it up, but you only wanted to write that book and get it out there and one person rejected it, what would that mean to you? Nothing. So either you have to fall in love with the idea of, I mean, not all the time, you know, we put our work out there. I put my work out there and, and you don't know if anybody's going to watch it or anybody's going to do it. Mm -hmm. And so if I was reliant on external feedback to tell me if this is for me, I'd be in trouble yeah. because I went a long time. Okay. With anybody watching anything that I was doing. So my desire in my heart and the belief that God had given me a desire or that desire was implanted in me or that I am on a mission that I want to, or I want to help people, you know, my mission is greater than my ego. Mm. And I really feel like it has to be that way. If you're going to make a difference in the world and live into your purpose, it really can't be about you at some point. And that's total healing. It's like, oh, it doesn't have to be about me, but it, it's like this middle way. It's not all about me, but I'm enough, but I'm still enough and I'm still awesome and I'm still whatever. But, you know, my mission trumps my ego. Oh my gosh. And well, so I show up. Quote, can we just take a moment of silence for that quote, everybody? <laughs> my mission is bigger than my ego. I freaking love that. It's so good. Continue. <laughs> yeah. So just, I, that's my, I have, I had to come up with that for me to keep making videos. Yeah. You know, um, just because I believe I have something that it can be shared or needs wants to be shared or even needs to be shared, you know, but I, I can't rely on the feedback of other people to make, to, to tell me how I'm doing. Yeah. Do you think like th this fear of rejection or criticism or, you know, what that, um, that strong of a fear that people with codependency are struggling with, is that because uh, rejection and criticism meant something a little bit scarier to them than maybe somebody else. Maybe rejection meant withholding of love in a relationship, or it meant that they were shamed or punished in some way. So they just try to avoid any kind of 
rejection and, and criticism. Yeah, but it doesn't, right. But it doesn't, yeah, but we don't, we're not always conscious of it. So okay. I, I, I'll give you an example. I grew up with, with a narcissistic parent and it was high criticism all the time. You know, who do you think you are? You're not enough. And so that rejection was over and over and over again. So what we think is I'm going to develop such a, a an ironclad um, wall against rejection. So we do one of two things. We don't put ourselves out there at all to mm -hmm. experience it, or we convince ourselves that we don't care what people think. And we do it to a point of our detriment because we do need to care to some degree what people are thinking so that we can help them, what's in their heads, what's in their minds, not what they think of you, but what they're thinking right. in, in general, right? right so right. there's a balance there. So we convince ourselves and then we we hide. And that's more of like that withholder. Or it's all the personality patterns combined. But I think what happens is um, it's not a normal fear of rejection. Oh, everybody has that. Everybody fears rejection. And so they give you the vanilla advice. They give you the bumper sticker. Just do it. Just suck it up, girlfriend. Put your big girl pants on. You know, and we right, wonder, right. like they give you the advice, right? Because everybody fears rejections. Everybody has that. So just do it. And you're wondering why when you go to do it, you you then reel after you make the thing for an hour and a half about what you made and watch it back and hate it and wonder if it's good enough. And then you post it and you you're worried and concerned and check in at every that there's a there's an obsessive element to this fear of rejection because the trigger is there. So then when somebody says one thing, those of us that grew up in this environment have an overreaction to criticism an overreaction and a normie who doesn't have childhood trauma would not understand it. You're too sensitive. And then they re-traumatize. Mm. What's wrong with you? Like, just put yourself, aren't you over this by now? Aren't you, didn't you grow out of this? Come on. Like, and it, but it's, it's not something you grow out of. It's something you, you minister to yourself about. Right. Oh, honey, it's okay. You know, it's like, you got to reparent yourself every minute through that trigger because, but yes, the short answer is yes, they Everybody who has that deep fear, and that's why we need more programs. We need more shows like this. We need more, more things for people to understand that the experiences that you've had in your life left a mark, and that's okay. So many people are in a good place with their parents now, or they don't want to go back and do that stuff, you know, because it's like they're they're fifty, they're forty, they don't want to they want to be done, they want to be over it. But I'd rather do a deep dive and resolve that stuff once and for all, so I could live the last quarter, you know, the, the last third of my life, happy and free. Cause mm -hmm. I don't think you have to keep carrying this around. I don't think we're supposed to be 80 years old and afraid to push the live button. Right. Right. Uh, who wants that? Right. You know? Yeah. yeah. What? But if you don't understand what it is, you can't really heal it. It's like you go to the doctor and he, he, you know, he tells you, he gives you Robitussin, but you have lung cancer. Right. You right. know? Yeah. Is there, what other things do you, have you done for yourself now that you've kind of, you know, you've healed all of your own patterns or, you know, you're in, in progress with those things that like, what looks different in your habits and your routines or the things that you tell yourself, like, you know, my mission is, is bigger than my ego. Any other like practical tips for people on how they can just be kinder to themselves through this stuff? Yeah. I really do. I, and I do want to say and add this in that for me, whenever I was first trying to overcome this unconsciously, I whine 
Ativan alcohol was the solution for me. I could feel that and shut it up, drown it out and just do the thing and be, be more free of myself. So alcohol, alcohol served a purpose for me. And when I look back and I've been sober for 15 years, when I look back and I say, what purpose did alcohol serve? Well, it helped me be more of myself care less about the outcome of that, be less judgmental in my head and just go on. So I realized if alcohol is being taken away, I still have to rectify those things where I'm afraid to really be vulnerable, put myself out there, do the thing. And therapy is good, okay, for listening. But for me, I think that trauma, like The Body Keeps Score, those wonderful books yeah. about trauma in the body, for me, what my biggest breakthroughs came through uh, one tool that I'll give everybody that I think everybody should do that has this type of trauma, which is therapeutic dance. So I walked in to this one place, this one like yoga place that was done up for the night with a bunch of, I walked in and it was like granola people with like hippie shit you know, and braids in their hair and like smelled like patchouli and like <laughs> they were like, like trying to hug me and- <laughs> They were trying to hug me and stare in my eyes. No, not for me. Okay. I was like, I was like, these are not my people. What planet have I arrived on? I need to get the fuck out. I mean, I was just like, this is horrible. But, and they wanted to look at me as soon as I came in, they wanted to put their hands on my shoulders and stare in my face. And I was just like, what, what, what do you know? Soul gaze with a stranger. So anyway, uh, I said, I got to do this. And the dance was five rhythms was where I started. Five Rhythms was a dance formed by Gabrielle Roth. It's like a moving meditation where basically you go on a dance meditation. And, and then I got into ecstatic dance, somatic movement, where you, you go into the studio and you put music on and your body lets out or does whatever it needs to get rid of. You know, the, you'll make it like a, it sounds so weird now to think that now I get off on making an imaginary fire in the middle of the dance floor and shaking my shit out. But to get there from there to here was because it worked. Mm. And every time I cared a little less about what I would look like, I had less conversations in my head about my stupidity and, and, and my judgment. I literally shook the judgment off. And, and then, then I had the room to cognitively put bumper stickers you know, reminders around, but I really think that shift happens internally. And for me, that's a daily practice. If my mission is bigger than my purpose, I start every morning with dance or some kind of therapeutic movement where I'm out of my head and into my body and channeling what is to come through for the day. I never push a play button now without meditating or praying before I do it, lighting a candle, calling in whatever. I don't do anything without my partners or partner mm-hmm. and or else it's all about me and I'm going to fuck it up. Not because I'm not good, not because I'm not worthy, but because there's so much more to me than my limited mind can imagine. Yeah. And so when you're stuck in codependency, it's all about how to fix me, how to fix my mind, how to fix, but then you realize you're not broken. There's so much more, you know, otherness to you than just this personality. Yes. Yes. Oh my gosh. This is so good. I need to try meditative dance and all that stuff that you just recommended. That sounds incredible. And I also, um, I meditate before every podcast recording, every call, every meeting, all of that, like, you know, and, and because I have found the same thing where I'm like, I will be too in my head. I'll be too focused on like the notes that I wrote down on this word doc, instead of just being present and having a conversation and just 
being honest and transparent in the moment that brings about um the best stuff so yeah it's that's radical healing that. though so yeah. i know somebody else is hearing that who's early in their recovery or healing from this and they're like i can't i can't imagine even getting there yeah i can't imagine even being to the point where i just woke and i've done stages now where i've gone in and have not have prepared like maybe an outline yeah and not practiced a lick yeah and just gotten up there and let it let it come out because it's so much better right and it, mistakes and all right Absolutely. And you know what? I sometimes I meditate for 60 seconds before the meeting starts. Sometimes it's right. five or 10 minutes. And but I have to do it. Like even if it's a 20 second collect yourself moment. Um, but thank you for sharing that. I, I cannot wait to try that. Um, something that you had mentioned on your podcast that I thought was very powerful, that was kind of like you said nonchalantly, but it was this idea between um expectations and standards in a relationship. Can you please expand on that? And, you know, what does that really mean, especially for people in a codependent dynamic? This is the crux of the work that I do and the things I believe is expectations versus standards. So I get into a relationship and I make, and I, and I get into this amazing thing and I don't realize I'm going to just paint a story for you. Okay. I'm a fixer personality. Okay. I grew up as like a fixer. I want to take help everybody in my family and fixers attract victims. Okay. I'm just going to start there because a hero needs a victim. All right. Mm -hmm. So let's say I get into this dynamic. I get into this relationship. And at the beginning I'm thinking, you know, this, I just totally lost my train of thought because of perimenopause. Tell me that question again. Oh, good. It was um, the difference between expectations and standards. Yes. Yes. Okay. So I attract somebody in my relationship who is kind of broken, but I, I don't realize that's all happening. And then I marry the person. Okay. I meet John and then I marry him. And now I have all these expectations of not John, but of a husband. And I say, man, husbands are there. They, they provide, they support, they encourage, they're a true partner. They're, they're a good listener. They're a great communicator. You know, my checklist of husbandry. Mm -hmm. And then I put that checklist, superimpose it on John. And I forget everything about John's history, everything about where he came from. But I met, and I ignored it. Maybe there were flags or whatever, but now he must transform and conform into the person that he needs to be for me instead of who he really is. Okay. Step one is to say, who is the person I have in front of me? If I, I'm going to, I'm just going to look at them radically. I have a process for this. It's called the rapid detachment method. We're making a workbook that we're going to put out so everybody oh, can cool. do it eventually. Great. Yeah. It's going to be, it's probably the process that the crux of it, crux of everything. But so you, you say, what am I expecting this person to do? And then you go, well, who do I have here? All right. Well, let's ditch the expectations. I have John. John grew up in an abusive household with an absent alcoholic father. Uh, he, nobody really talked about it. They swept it under the rug. Uh, he drank a lot in college and he was a binge drinker. And then he got into his first marriage and they divorced. It's unclear if it was alcoholism, but he can't really see the kids that much. And, you know, you start digging into his past and you start seeing all these things. And then you go, and who else do I have in my present moment? Well, John is an alcoholic and, you know, John's actively, uh, emotionally unavailable. He has some narcissistic qualities and you start to see people for who they really are when you let go of the expectation. All right. Mm -hmm. Then the next question is not how do I fix John because I'm in this fixer pattern. How can I make John see that he's a narcissist? How can I make John see that he's an alcoholic? How can I make John see what he's doing to me and turn into the person I need? 
we're going to let all that go and we're going to create a standard instead. And we're going to say, what type of relationship am I no longer willing to settle for? And what do I really want? And then instead of, instead of anything else, I'm only going to put people in positions in my life that are capable of doing the job. Not in, not somebody who like, I'm going to put John in a position of husband. Now, if I owned a company, all right, and I was a CEO of my own company, and I have somebody who's like late every day and doesn't really show up and it's kind of not really available and drunk all the time, would I put him as my partner in my business? Right. Would I sit with that person every day and go, you need to stop drinking. You need to see how you No, eventually I'd buy him out. I'd move on. But we, we don't have that element of, I need to fix this person because it's about me. When you're in a marriage, you're like, well, if I don't fix John, then I'm not good enough. But if it's a business partner, you're like, fuck off. Interesting. Right? You see the difference there? Interesting. So I set a standard for myself and I say, this is what, so then I go, um, one of the biggest things we can realize in our lives with our partners is look at them and stop saying they aren't willing to do and be who I need them to be for me. That's not a loving thing to do. You look at a person and you say, what if it's not that they're not willing? What if it truly is they're not capable? Mm. They have a mental handicap. They have a psychological handicap. They have an addiction. They have some, now what? Now what? What if it's not a question of willing, but able? The most compassionate thing you can do for people that aren't able to be who you need them to be for you is hold the door when they leave. Instead of trying to make them into somebody else who they're not, like expecting a dog to clock. Mm-hmm. Like let people be who they are and you decide if you want them in your life and what role you want them to play in your life if they are if you're going to accept them for who they are. So either I see you John and I love you, but as a partner, you're not a good fit for me. So I'm going to give you every opportunity to go to treatment, do whatever you need to do, work through this, but if in 6 months, you know, I'm going to have to decide at some point, I don't want to be with an alcoholic. I don't want to live this life. And that's okay. That's a standard you're going to hold for yourself without judging yourself for it. Instead of just hanging in and hoping it changes, trying to fix it. Right. So this like expectations versus standards is almost kind of like the idea of somebody and the reality of somebody in a way, like just kind of well, like it, yeah and it and it either can be your idea of somebody it yeah. could be your fantasy of somebody it can be your past history with somebody the five minutes oh. when you first met them that you're hanging on to where they were showing you their love bomb you know i mean right. it could be you could have some evidence of it even that's oh. why it feels so real like when they're not drunk they're a different person you know what i mean like that's why right. people get so hung up delaney is right. because they're they feel like they're dealing with a jekyll and hyde mm. and most mm. people who are in this dynamic grew up with that Jekyll and Hyde. So sometimes they love you and sometimes they're not there for you. And, you know, they, they, they love you and then they hurt you. They love you and then they hurt you and you just hang on to love. Oh my gosh. Wow. So, you know, throughout my life, I, you know, I, I've loved more than one person that has struggled with an addiction, whether it's substance issues or behavioral. And I think for me, when you love someone who struggles with something like this, you see the whole person, right? Like you don't just see the addiction. You see all the great qualities they have. Like you said, there's more than one side, Um, you know, the times they've been there for you. And so like, maybe when you meet other people who are struggling with something similar throughout your life, again, you see the whole person 
instead of maybe somebody who didn't get exposed to something like that growing up, it's such a foreign thing to them that are they better at setting boundaries of like, I don't know what this is. This, this doesn't seem like a fit and therefore no, thank you. You know what I mean? Like, is, is that part of it? Yes. So you asked about the link between addiction and codependency, right? And that's what it is. So a healthy person isn't going to stay, be in that thing. If you're in a relationship with an addict or an alcoholic or a narcissist, you are codependent and you were that way before you got in this thing. You got in this thing because you were targeted because you are not targeted. It's probably not the best word, but you got in this relationship and you were chosen by that addict or alcoholic because you fit, you fit the bill. They saw in you the fixer. They saw in you the hero. They saw in you the 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 hero. They saw in you the person that they could do that dance with. And it's not your fault. It's the trauma that we reenact. People think a trauma bond is like a behavioral thing. Like, oh yeah, I do the same thing. It's not. It's an emotional state in my mind. Where a trauma bond is, I'm gonna pick people who made me feel like I felt like I felt when I was seven. Mm. I'm gonna. Pick people who made me feel like I felt when I was 11, when that thing happened to me, that's a trauma bond. So with an alcoholic, who's really nice to you, but then rejects you, that old feeling keeps cropping up of, if you love me, you'd be nice all the time. Why do you love me? And you hurt me because you're trying to constantly figure it out, trying to constantly like make sense of it all. So a normal person without trauma, people try to convince me all the time. I grew up with the perfect parents. My life was perfect. Everybody was perfect. I'm perfect. You're perfect. You know, <laughs> I mean, just like, it's, it's annoying. You know what I mean? Like nothing ever happened. I don't know. My parents were amazing. We were like had money and it was great. And it was, you know, and then I dig around and they're like, but this guy's an asshole. He's an alcoholic and he's ew, like never in my family. But then I, then I look around and I poke in there and it's like hypercritical, perfectionistic, narcissistic parents, you know, like they don't recognize the, it was the path was laid. Interesting. Wow. It's, it's, it's fascinating how people, you know, can't see these things. I, there's a great analogy that I love that I think can be applied to any kind of conditioning that we have, but it's something like, um, let's use codependency as an example, obviously asking someone how they feel about their codependency is like asking a fish, how they feel about water. Like the fish response, yes. what's water, right? Because they were born into it. They lived in it. They've survived in it. They don't know anything different. They don't know like, you know, there's a bird flying around squawking in the sky that there's like other ways to be or live. So how can someone- Instead they're like, oh, bird shit's familiar. That's the bird shits on you. That's how it goes. And that's your covered bird shit. I, that, I'm stealing that. I'm going to say that all the time because about the codependency of the fish in the water. So much of my work is codependency education. Yeah. Right. So how it, does somebody just, start to identify it if it's all they've known? They don't even know that there's another way to do something. They would, they, they, unfortunately, nobody really comes to this point until they're in crisis and what they're experiencing doesn't need a name. Mm. Do you know what I mean? They're right, like, I, right. Hey, I am, I don't, and it comes up as like, I think almost everybody that I've ever worked with at one point or another has said, they've been on some kind of crossroads or fence. It's like a holy moment in their lives. I don't know. Should I stay? Should I go? Should I keep on or should I quit? You know, some version of that like holy moment where they just can't take it anymore. 
And codependency, you know, they're not going to call it that, but they're going to call it, should I break up with my alcoholic boyfriend? Uh, is my husband lying to me? Um, why do I keep picking assholes? Um, why do, is my girl, best friend a narcissist? You know, like right. they start to feel it. Right. And then, and then the identification comes later, but some, I still call it codependency and addiction because I feel like somebody therapist in some office that doesn't know what she's doing and kind of knows what she's doing is going to look at a client with an alcoholic and have them in therapy, which is a terrible idea because he's probably drunk in the session. And she's going to look over at the wife and she's going to go, well, you're codependent. And she's going to go, what's that? Right. Google. <laughs> Let me get my phone really quick. YouTube. Wow. That makes a lot of sense. That just, it's like a feeling of like, something's got to give, something has to change. I don't know what's going on, but I've noticed a pattern I have or whatever. And I got to figure this shit out. Um, yeah. I'm tired of this. When's, when am I going to be done with this? Like, I don't deserve this. Something's got to give. Right. But it's um, usually that like, I don't deserve this or, you know, I'm, yeah, I've had this, I'm done. Tired. Yeah, I'm tapped out. This has happened maybe in one way or another too many times. Um, and I'm seeing that and I don't know exactly why, but I know maybe I have a little bit more power control over it than I may have thought. Um, I think you mentioned at some point that codependency kind of uh, comes along with giving a lot of your power away or giving your power away. Um, could you expand on that? Like, how do people start to take their power back if they have felt powerless, but now they're realizing, wait a minute, I, I do play a part in this. I do have control over my outcomes. I see two, two sides of one coin with codependency is um, I have a love wound or a power wound. And oh, this is like the new way that I'm going to, I'm going to describe this. And if I have uh, a, a, a love wound, I will be attracted to power. I won't trust love, but I'll be attracted to power. I'll become a controlling person. I'll become a dominant person. I'll become a, you know, the most powerful person ever, but I'll sacrifice the love. And if I have a, um, a love, a, a power wound, I'll do the opposite and become like all about the love and I'll, and I'll get all my attention through that. It's a love wound or a power wound. And okay. so what we have to learn how to do, and I think society has made this on the spectrum of love and power, it's light and dark. It's not good or bad. Love or power are not a bad thing, either one of them. But what we've done in our society is we've villainized power and over uh, exemplified love. Okay. So God is love and power is the devil in our minds. Okay. We have this mm -hmm. battle. And so what we do is we choose sides. Well, I'm going to have power over you and you're going to love me, or I'm going to love you and you're going to have power over me. Right. And so we get into these power struggles and that's what these co-addicted codependent relationships are. So I think to answer your question, a sense of power is this is not real power. This is imagined power. It's games. If I if I sit down with you, Delaney, and we play Monopoly, okay, and I'm good. I'm good at Monopoly. I have all the <laughs> How things. dare you? I, I hate Monopoly, by the way. I'd rather play like Connect Four personally. So long. It's such a long game. It's, it's it's long. It's stupid. It's like it's dumb. But let's just pretend, okay? I I don't even know how, what I'm doing there. But I you know buy some land. I do the thing, and I'm I'm the queen of Monopoly. I feel so powerful. I win. You know, we win the game and then I close up the game and I get all those, those fucking stupid pieces and put them away. Yeah. Am I more powerful? 
Am I more powerful? Do I have more power from that? Am I a powerful person in reality? That's what we do. When we go into, <laughs> that's what we go into these relationships. Yeah. When we put on these power plays or these love and power struggles, yeah. and all we're doing is playing a game. So it's not your true power. It's not real. So how do you restore your power is you stop putting your power in a game. You stop putting your power in something that's not real. And these relationships that where you're playing roles and parts and rescuing and hurt, those aren't real. That's a, that's a game. Mm. You can enter dependence. You let love be what it is. You let people be what they are. You don't internalize people's behavior. You let people, let it be what it is. You know, you just, but you hold a standard, you let it be what it is, but you don't have to eat there. You know what I mean? Like, you're not going to try to change the restaurant. You're just not going to eat there anymore. You just, that's the restaurant's not for you. You know what I mean? You don't go, well, they don't make my kind of food. And if they cared about me, they would make my kind of food. No, if I can make this kind of food, do you want to go there or not? Yeah. Yes. That's, and but you don't take it personally. No, I love I love that you have described this as like a taste thing, right? It's like, it's like if there's an avocado in the grocery store and somebody like passes by, it's like, I don't like avocado. That avocado is not like, oh, oh my God, I'm, I'm the worst. I don't deserve like- to be in the grocery store. And then somebody else is like, oh, avocado is one of my favorite foods. Oh, I must be like the best thing in here. It's just like being unshakable, I guess, in your belief in yourself and your self-worth, no matter whether somebody says negative or positive stuff, you're just, yes, and you're, that's right. Your intrinsic worth is not good or bad. Again, it's the power struggle of good or bad, light or dark. Am I up? Am I down? You're none of it. You're just existing on a spectrum of being with experiences and it has nothing to do with your value at all. When bad things happen, when good things happen, when, when they like you, when they don't like you, it's all nonsense. It's all a game. It's all made up. Yeah. None of that's real. So can codependency be present without addiction being involved? And is codependency itself a little bit of an addiction? So that's exactly what I was going to answer your question. I was going to say okay. codependency is an addiction. Okay. It's an addiction to a trauma, tra- a tra- trauma bond is an addiction as well. So it's an addiction to a behavior pattern that you developed as a child that helped you feel connected, love, survive, or whatever, that you are compelled to act out in your relationships until it is healed. So codependency is an addiction. Wow. So interesting. It's so interesting. And without like- it, like I have so many people, like yeah. I have uh, one client, I don't, I, you know, it's very, it's highly confidential. I'm like a vault. So many people that I work with, you know, but I'll just tell you like, in his example, I have so many people that I have worked with that have decided the standards here the problems over there. I'm going to do everything I can to help them, but I'm going to, I'm going to be over here and release the hostage, right. And let them go. And they divorce. And one of the first feelings they go through is this intense withdrawal. They, you think they're going to be happy. Thank God that's done. That's out of my life. They're, Cause they've been hurt. They've been manipulated, gaslit, lied too. Yeah. And they think, thank God that's over. But the truth is they're addicted to that cycle of rescue. So they're, they're in withdrawal. They don't know what to do with themselves. All the all their self-worth is gone because their value was in the fixing and the finding and the researching and the helping and the complaining and the lecturing and the blaming. Um, and they have to go through detox emotionally. So yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a severe addiction. Wow. 
it's just it's so interesting because you think of or at least I have like this idea of codependency addiction all that's like oh somebody is an addict and then the other person is codependent but it's like there's there's addiction in both parties that is just yeah they're both they're both codependent it's just the, right so they're both the same person codependency is at the root of addiction it's an attachment issue from my mind when i worked in treatment for 10 years helped thousands of clients i realized that everybody had an attachment wound that was there that's the thing they all have in common they have an attachment wound and yeah. i think addiction addiction is an attachment issue it's not really it, that's the root of it right and codependency is an attachment issue so when we think about that at the root uh, the only difference between you and an alcoholic is their coping mechanism to their attachment trauma is flight. Okay. They take off, they get high, they run away, they do whatever. And your coping mechanism is fight. You double down on trying to fix, you lecture, you blame, or you, 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 you dance, you do whatever. And so you're flighting and fighting and you're chasing each other around, but you're the same person. You just wow. have different coping mechanisms to your trauma. Addiction is just a coping mechanism to trauma. Yeah. Just like achievement is right. the same coping mechanism to trauma for so many of us. Wow. I heard a therapist call it trauma drive. Oh my gosh. Yeah. I was like, that's right. That rings Holy a bell. Shit. This is so interesting because yeah, I am. I am a overachiever in recovery, perfectionist, all the things. And when I started to attempt to heal my own stuff, the desire and need to achieve started lowering. Like I started not feeling like I needed or even wanted to do that stuff. I felt like I wanted to be more present. I wanted to be more in my own body and take better care of myself. And therefore I you know, I, I stopped achieving so much, which is challenging to sit with sometimes, but I'm doing a few things that I really enjoy. They might not be the shiniest, sexiest things, but it's what actually feeds me versus what looks good. You know, this is beautiful. And one of the most important things, and that should be on a loop and that should be like part of the thing you play. I mean, that's, that's so beautiful because the truth is, and what's coming to my mind when you're saying that is because the more the more you you are yourself the more you become who you are the the less you need mm. the more you are the less you need the more you know you are the less you need and it's just this i think it's this evolution of recovery like trauma is a acquisition phase of our lives. I'm going to prove, I'm going to get all the things and all the accolades and show, but healing is a release. What it's like when you're healing, you just go through this thing. Like what else can I get rid of? Yes. There, there'll be, you'll, you'll notice when you're healing, right? Yeah. Like you want to do the great purge every, every few months I'm throwing bags down. I'm donating bags. I'm like, get this shit out of here. I'm addicted you know? to decluttering. I'm a big minimalist over here. So yeah, it's just, like, I'm addicted to decluttering too, because you know what? The, <laughs> yeah. To me, that's a symptom of healing. Yeah. It's a symptom of healing is because I, I don't have anything to prove. I'm not in an acquisition phase anymore. How much can I get? It's not how much can I get? It's how much can I let go of? Right. You know, how much can I let go of? How much can I release? What can I, um, 
Because you know why too, I love, I did hear this from Janine Roth is like why you can have a bunch of glasses of wine, but she uses Oreo cookies or whatever food. And why you can never have enough Oreos is because you can't have enough. You can't have enough of what you don't really want. Oh, and wow. that to me was a quote that like changed my life. I was like, oh, the, why can't I have enough chips? It's not what I really want. Pause. What do I really want? I want to crunch on something because I'm pissed. Oh, well, what am I pissed about? I'm angry. I need to let out anger. You know, it's like, mm. it's having these conversations with ourselves. Oh, I, I, you know, why isn't there enough wine? Because it's not the wine I want. But what do I want that the wine's going to give me? I can be myself. I can have sex. I can really, oh, I need to work on my intimacy issues. Mm. Wow. You know? Yeah. Yeah. What have you had to let go of for yourself to become this like current version of you? <laughs> what have you had to let go of, whether it's relationships, habits, whatever else? Well, I had to let go. I, I lost my dad. Mm -hmm. I, I let go of my dad. And, and, and that wasn't because a conscious decision that I made, but I let go of the idea of dad, what I thought that was supposed to be. I let go of mom traditionally. And we've gone through phases where, you know, we just ended like a four year separation where the toxicity was too high, you know? So I let go of people when it's too toxic for me, uh, without judgment around that. Um, I've had to let go of other people's expectation of who they think I'm supposed to be or what I'm supposed to say. I've had to let go of what they're going to say and how they feel about it. I've had to let go of some kind of uh, dollar sign in my mind that tells me if I've arrived. Mm. Um, I've had to let go of some kind of social feedback that tells me that I'm, so it's, I guess, expectations, any expectations that are tied to my value or my worth, daily I release. Am I wearing this because I like it? Am I wearing these gold earrings because I like them? Or, and they make me feel good? Or am I wearing these gold earrings because they look like money and I want you to think I have it? Okay. These are yeah. conversations we want to have with ourselves on a daily basis. Yeah. Why am I doing what I'm doing? Codependency is doing something in your life and attach, it's attached to an outcome. Mm. That's codependency. Okay. I'm going to wear this because you're going to think this of me. I'm going to put this episode out because you're going to like that. It's all transactional. That's codependency. Yeah. Outside of that, healing is I'm just going to do this because it lights me up and I like it. Yeah. I'm just going to do this with no expectation that it's going to come back to me, that it's going to return to me, that you're going to you're going to do this for me now that I've done that for you. So I've had to let go of transactional relationships. That is so good. That is uh um yeah, I used to what when I when I used to be on social media, I'm not on there anymore, but I used to ask myself Am I doing this just to post it on Instagram or am I doing it because I really want to? Like, if I couldn't tell anybody about it, would I still do it? And then I started asking I actually myself. Said that when I went off of Instagram, that's what I asked myself. And it was like, no, I wouldn't post a picture of myself at this thing just because I want to. No, I'm here at the thing. I don't right. need a picture. Yes. Amen. Right. Wow. Powerful. Yeah. If, you're, if your listeners would just ask themselves that today, am I, if nobody sees this, do I want to be doing it? Right. Right. Or am I doing it so that somebody will see it? Right. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, I had to, I oh kept my asking myself and then my life had to look very different because most of what I was doing was for the wrong reasons. And, uh, so it's a, you know, painful transition and stuff, letting go of the things that you think make you special or different or whatever. Um, but 
But have you yeah. found your life has improved? Like how has your life improved yeah. since you let that go? Um, it's more freedom of time, energy, mental clarity, but there is a lot of like, there's still FOMO for sure. You know, there's still like, um, especially like with, uh, I, w- I did stand up comedy for a, a quite, quite some time and things were going well, but I was fucking miserable and having to make a decision of like, I need to get out of this, but there's still an aspect of this that I enjoy. But when I take all of it away, what becomes my outlet for joke writing or some kind of, um, you know, feedback from people or an audience. It's like, where do I put that? And so it just felt like I closed this book and then I didn't have like a notepad to write on. You know what I mean? It, it, it was, um, mm-hmm. it felt like I had to grieve that part of myself and I still do sometimes, you know, but I, I know it's like, I didn't want that day to day. Like I it went against everything I want for myself. The cost of it was too high. I don't want to be out every night. I don't want to be on a plane twice a week. I don't want to be away from my, my family and my friends. And I don't want to be burnt out all the time. And so I just, um, it's kind of sad. It almost feels like a breakup that you have with somebody, but not because you don't love them in a way. It's, it's because mm-hmm. they want to live in Australia and have 10 children and you want to live in California and have no kids. Right. And it's like, but we, I love it still. I love the craft of it. What do I do with it now? That's been a struggle for me. So I've had to find other avenues for like writing and stuff. You know, what I always think is what, and and what I wish there was. And and if you want to do this, I think this'd be a great add on for you. If you're ever think this way is that I, you know, I think that dysfunction is funny. Okay. (laughs) And I think, all right. And I think that a lot of comedians like Craig Shoemaker reminds me of somebody who talks about that all the time, you know, mm. whatever Yeah, you can take his name out if you're not you know, willing to t- t- talk about him. But so dysfunction is funny, but here's, here's my, I, I love humor. Humor is one of my, I got, I, I'll die yeah. without it. Okay. <laughs> and I'm sitting here every day and I'm talking about alcoholism and codependency and it's like, you know, telling the sad stories and I'm crying and I'm like, you know, I want to interject humor because if we're not laughing, yeah. then, oh my God, you know? Yeah. So somebody like you has all this comedic experience and knows about timing and storytelling and um, pause, you know, doing all the things and inserting it and where to make it and how to fluff, fluff you know, suss it out and all that stuff, yeah. right? Is so needed for speakers, coaches, and teachers mm. who need to add humor into what they're saying. So like, I, you know, I'd sign up for that program or thing all day, you know, by a comedian who's like, Hey, look, you want to add some lightness to what you're saying. Here's a comedy yeah. coach, you know, let me have you <laughs> um, <laughs> right. like, let's add some lightness into the heavy. Yeah. Uh, I think that's a needed thing oh, I to, to help people. Yeah. And I, you are so fun in your podcast, by the way. So like, yeah, you, Thanks. you definitely infuse it. And it, it, it does. I, that's why I'm drawn to it because you, the way that you speak is like, I'm listening to a friend and you're being yourself, you're being honest, you're being funny. Like it's just that authenticity, that authenticity definitely comes through. Um, but no, I appreciate it. But yeah, like stuff like that, letting go of something that you think, well, this is, this is what made, this is what led to other opportunities. Who I, who am I without this like shiny thing? It can be hard, but it, uh, to answer like your earlier question, I just feel like I'm more myself now. I don't feel Me like too. I'm, that's, you know, that's exactly that's exactly you hit the nail on the head is that that's healing 
Healing yeah. is what did you have to let go of? I had to let go of this platform or this job. And for me, it was corporate America. It was like the titles and climbing the ladder and all right. of the fancy stuff. Uh, I, if, and that was devastating for me. If I'm not this girl that makes all this money and changes all these companies and, you know, is so smart, like, who am I? I'm just a girl who did makes YouTube videos and nobody watches, you know what I mean? Uh, and, yeah. and I mean, people are watching, but you know what I mean? Right, so it's right. like the right people that need to hear it. Thank God. Right. But yeah, it's letting go of, of optics for in favor of an authentic life. And yeah. I remember one time I was, I was meeting with a client and she was, her family was worth like 300 million, but I mean, they just had so much money and she was sitting across from me and I, I had my bias to, biases, I was, biases. I was like, well, what can I give you or help you find in yourself that you don't already have? You know, you have it all, you have the private planes, you have the things. And she looked at me and she was like, my true self. Wow. You know, authentic joy, authentic joy. So I'm so proud of you. You know, you don't need that, but oh, what a you. catalyst you are for so many people in the entertainment industry to see it's possible. You can let that platform go. You can create a new thing and be happy. And the work you're doing is, is changing lives and it's growing and obviously it's doing amazing. And I, I can imagine if I would peek into your family that there's endless amounts of gratitude. Yeah. You know, for the people that you're with on a daily basis, that they get to see you and be with you and experience you, you know, Very sweet. what a gift. You don't have to leave your house to change, change the world mm. or, you know, or impact the world or be, you know, so that's, that's a lot. I mean, Hollywood, it's a different game out there. It's a completely. Right. Right. <laughs> yes. Um, no, thank you. That, the, that really means a lot. I really appreciate it. It's one um, thing for somebody in Kentucky to give up their Instagram. It's another thing for somebody in LA who's a comedian to give up their gig, give up their social. Yeah. <laughs> like that's like, I talk about reinvention. I mean, that's <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. No, it's, a, and I, I really, I wanted to be like, how can I stay at home and, and do work? Like I, how can I like make my own schedule and not have to travel? You know, and it's like, I, I figured out a way to do it, but it, it was a tough road. Like it's possible but you're going to go through some shit and there's going to be a lot right. of grief and, but it, it really is rewarding and it is worth it. Um, well, you, you know, anything in life worth doing resembles birth. Mm, you're going to go yeah. through some shit. You're going to go through some goo. <laughs> it's going to be some guck. You're going to be in that canal. It's going to squeeze you. Life's going to squeeze you. It's going to spit you out. It's going to be might a be mix poop. of blood. Yeah. <laughs> you might, you might slide into poop. You might be born into shit. You know, that, that's likely. Okay. And I don't know when we're born, we're like, Oh, it's supposed to be easy. If it's meant to be, I mean, it's like you were you meant to be born. Well, that was hard oh, as fuck. So, yeah, right. There you go. Oh God, you might be burst into shit. I will never forget that quote. You have spoken about how uh, addiction often goes hand in hand with like gaslighting, lying, lying by omission, downplaying the severity of something. Can you explain why that is, and explain like what what can that actually look like or sound like in a relationship? Well, I think addiction is a form of narcissism. I think it is narcissism. It's not like it. I think it is it. Mm. And I think because we have, we can have toxic compassion for addiction and we say it's trauma, you know, whatever else. But the truth is it is a total, it's a, it's a little bit different in a sense where you're not necessarily obsessed with self in addiction because your self is lost, but you're obsessed with this new personality, which is the addictive personality. And you're not born with that. The addicted personality is what the personality somebody takes on when they become an addict and alcoholic, and that's the narcissistic addicted personality. When they get sober, they may have it or not, 
They may still be narcissistic. You don't know, but everybody who's addicted displays those qualities of narcissism and addiction speaks in the language of lies. It hijacks the person. And I just want you to imagine if I, if there's an addiction, it could come in and it's like this manipulative, you know, it's like a seductress and a liar and all of these things. And it comes in and when it talks to somebody, it's in full protection mode. It doesn't care about you. It's like a a mobster. If you could picture, you know, mob life, like that's that gangster is, and you have to be a narcissist to be a gangster. You have to not care right? In order to do what you're going to do to hurt people and do everything else. The same is true for an addict or an alcoholic. There's an element of care that chip is missing. And it's very confusing for people because they're like, well, sometimes they care when they're sober, they care. But what I assert is it's not genuine care. It's a manipulation to make it okay, their behavior, so they can suck you back in. It's not, a, if they cared about you, okay, they would say, get away from me. I'm going to hurt you. And I'm not good for you right now. Get away from me. But that's not what they say. What they say is, I'm sorry, I won't do it again. I don't know what came over me. That wasn't me. Uh, you know, you made me do it. Uh, you pushed me there. They gaslight, guilt, blame, shame, all narcissistic qualities. And they stay stuck. So, but, but the main thing is, if somebody's really empathetic, they release the hostage. They don't just try to make it keep comfortable for the hostage and make it okay. You know? or smooth it over or lie about it or whatever. So it looks like how you know you're having that experience is you look at yourself and you go, am I nuts? Mm. Am I crazy? Am I making this up? Is this really happening? Is this as bad as I think it is? Is it me? Am I the problem? You know, all those memes. Yeah, that's that's a symptom that you're under the spell. Interesting. Yeah. And it's almost like sometimes it, it takes something kind of big to happen for people to realize, wait a minute, I wasn't crazy all that time. There's now like yes. this external evidence that I was, I was onto something, but maybe somebody was really good at downplaying it or justifying it or explaining it away. And then you have to deal with the fact that you like didn't listen to yourself for a long time. Well, it's right? true. And you know what, but then that's victim blaming because you were, most people don't want to admit they were a victim of somebody else's abuse, but addiction is a form of narcissistic abuse. And so when you get out of that, I equate being in a relationship with an action alcoholic or narcissist to like being in a relate, being in a cult. Okay. Yeah. When yeah. you're in there, you don't know you're in there. That's why you stay in it. You're like, Oh no, it's irrationalized, justify, minimize all the things, you know, you're gaslit. But what happens is when you get out of the cult, at first you're you're in denial and then all of a sudden it starts coming out. Oh my God, you realize it really was this bad. This is what happened to me. And then you get mad Then you're like, wow. So you have to be patient with yourself. Denial, addiction and codependency, both are rooted in denial. If If I'm codependent, I mostly live in denial about it. Well, I don't have that. That's not for me. Somebody else has that. But whenever you come into recovery, you start to wake up to your codependency. And the first step is like, I should have known better. But that's a that's a sick response. Really? You should have known better than to be gaslit by a master manipulator who's smarter than you when they're in their addiction? Okay. Right, right. right. I don't know how that was going to happen, but. Right. I'm so glad you brought up the cult thing. Cause I feel like I, I will hear people say, Oh, I, I would never fall for that. I would never get into a cult. It's like, if you've been in some kind of toxic relationship or narcissistic dynamic, 
you've basically been in a cult. Like it's, it's you've just been like in that. a cult. A cult party you've been in a of two. two, right? Yeah, exactly. A cult of two. And I'll tell you, an addict is in a cult of one when they're alone. You know what I mean? They have that whole party going on themselves. So they're, right. they're hijacked too. But right. yes, you, yes, you're, mm -hmm. yeah. Love cults. We should call them love cults. Like, Love cult. love cult. Yeah. In yeah. a love cult right. too. Right. <laughs> or three, I guess, if you are in, you know, three or more. Whatever. Hey, <laughs> hey. Parties. I would love to have a third husband if I could. <laughs> I just want one for money, one for sex, one for fun. Yeah, I mean, three. I mean, four. I don't one know. One for each day of the week would be fun. Yeah. Um, <laughs> um, Previously, none, but one I could, I could rotate them in for like two nights a week. Because I don't even think I'd want them here every day. But that's just... Now I think we are starting a real cult, Heidi. I think this is. <laughs> um, you talked about um, let's see, basically that we can't control or fix somebody's addiction, right? And so, what does it look like when somebody's trying to control or fix it, and what should they be doing instead? Very good. So when somebody's trying to control or fix the addiction, they're doing all the lifting. They're doing all the heavy lifting. They're looking up the meetings, driving somebody to the. They're, they're lecturing, blaming, pleading, um, sweeping things under the rug, calling the boss and making excuses. They're doing and all these enabling behaviors, but they don't call it that. And although you can't fix or control somebody's addiction, you do have massive influence over that person. And the influence is, here's the standard I'm setting for myself and for our family, and we'll be over here. We're not going anywhere for now. We'll be right here. But here's what you need to do to join us. We're not we're not living over here on this island of addiction with you anymore. We're over here in a house of sobriety, safety, security, and that's the standard we're going to hold. So you decide if you can handle that or not. But I'm not going to try to turn you into it, talk you into it, dump your shit down the drain, you know, all of that stuff anymore. I'm going to make the move. I'm going to say you need to go to treatment, and you can't live in this house until you have treatment, until you're in recovery. I mean, I, I've made so many podcast episodes about what it looks like when somebody's in recovery. But when I work with somebody, the main, the first thing we do is we stop the bleeding. You know, it's like, yeah. let's stop the bleeding. Let's get everybody settled and simmered and where they need to be. And then we can come up for air. Mm -hmm. You can't get dry under a waterfall. You can't try to fix this thing with, he's drunk and you're talking to him and he's drunk and crying. And I'm so sorry. I mean, it's, it's ridiculous. Yeah. Is there anything else that you would share with people who are like very much resonating with this, whether codependent addiction, all the above, um, what could they do today to start trying to break this pattern and do something different? So we don't want to put the cart before the horse. Okay. And break the pattern. That's like a high achiever. It's like, how do I be done with this and fix it immediately? Right. That's a codependent question, but that's okay. We're going to let it slide. <laughs> hey, I'm still in recovery. <laughs> still learning. <laughs> how do i be the best i'm just this? teasing you i'm just teasing um <laughs> i would say the first the first step is awareness around it just like anything anything is i have to become aware so maybe play around with the idea that this could be you and if that could be true how so and just start to be an observer in your life and wonder might i be trying to control this or fixing or you know, and start to research, start to look into it. I have a free resource if anybody wants to download. I don't know if we're allowed to do that now. Oh yeah. If I'm, am I allowed to share? Oh, please, okay. Please share. Um, yes, absolutely. 
Yeah, I would. So over at HeidiRain.com, they can take a free test that I created, an attachment personality pattern test, where they can take it and it takes about 10 minutes. It's a real test. It's not like which coffee flavor am I? It's like, <laughs> it's time. Okay. So right. <laughs> you can tell that guys are like, ah, sure. They opt out of like three minutes. They're like, I don't want to figure myself out. But the deep divers. Yes. Um, take the test over at HeidiRain.com and then and then start to look over at the podcast episodes to that pattern and see if it fits, you know, or the YouTube and see like, hey, does this resonate? And if it does and you want to fix it, then you reach out yeah. and you start a recovery course, whether that's with me or that's in your hometown or uh, there's lots of free ways you can do that. Join, you know, um, adult children of alcoholics or narcissists. Um, codependency anonymous, start working a, a program of some kind. But the first thing is just what's, what's going on. Let's get, mm. let's get a beat on this situation here. Right. Right. Oh my gosh. Thank you so much for your time today. This was just very enlightening in every area. I know you've already kind of plugged where people can find some of your work, but any, anywhere else people can, you know, find your book, watch your, you know, videos, podcasts, all that. Let's plug your stuff. I'm terrible. I'm terrible. I should have had a book here and some other merch. Um, (laughs) Just HeidiRain.com. You know, HeidiRain.com is like where they can like figure stuff out. And then also I have the podcast, which is also the same name as YouTube, which is addiction and codependency breakthrough with Heidi Rain. Beautiful. And so let's just, you know, just start a first date, right? Let's just like, let's go for coffee. Let's go check it. it out. I've been dating you, know. you for a while. We are in a relationship, whether you know oh, it or clearly not. we are. And I love it. And I'm so grateful. This is meant to be. I mean, I'm, I, I, I was so like beside myself when I looked to see whose podcast this is. And then I saw all the amazing things you've been up, you've done. And then, and then now you're doing this and you're, I'm just like, this is oh, Delaney so, Fisher. I'm you, know, so happy to- you gotta get your shit together. <laughs> I'm so happy to have you. Is there anything that you would like to leave people with that we maybe did not cover today? Any like kind of final words of wisdom that you want to share? Yeah, I guess, you know, you don't have to resonate with an alcoholic. So many people that I help are like, well, I'm not in a relationship with an alcoholic. And, uh, but I grew up with the narcissistic person, or I don't know if my parent was an alcoholic, but they, so just, if you think you might've been affected, you are. You know, so if it resonates, it resonates and don't qualify yourself for getting support. If something resonates, it resonates and it's meant for you. Mm-hmm. So don't put so many rules like, oh, I have to, you know, I, you know, that kind of a thing. Um, Great advice. If, if it's resonating with you, I'm t- talking to you. Yeah. Oh, I love it. Mm. We can end on that. Thank you so much, Heidi. Really, <laughs> really appreciate it. What a freaking episode that was. I'm going to have to go back and re-listen to this episode and let things sink in and take some notes because, you know, I was trying to be present for the conversation and, you know, asking Heidi follow-up questions and stuff, but I, I'm going to have to like listen to this in my own time and really let it, let it simmer. Um, thank you again to Heidi for recording on her birthday. Happy birthday. Go check out her podcast, her book, take that quiz that she has on her website. Um, And uh, as we wrap up here, I'll leave you with a little hot tip for my segment today. Um, uh, Cam and I just watched the documentary on Netflix. Is it called You Are What You Eat? A Twin Experiment. I think that's the name of it. We really enjoyed it. We thought it was like really fascinating, entertaining. Um, Basically, they take like, uh, I think a couple dozen 
identical twins and they feed one twin one diet and then the other twin a different diet and they see over the course of like eight weeks i think it is the difference that uh the differences it makes in their uh, physiology their um yeah all the, all the different tests um even like the arousal of certain people like how it affects arousal i mean they they get into some really interesting stuff so yeah highly recommend that i think it's always nice for me i like when it, documentaries are like entertaining and engaging and fun i think there's some documentaries that frankly just put me to sleep and this one felt like really uh really fun we watch every episode in one night so yeah check that out if you want um we also have an itunes review of the episode this review is from mini flora and it says uh it's titled they make the world better and it says, I come to believe that the most important relationship we have is the one we have with ourselves. When I listen to self-helpless, I understand myself more and I don't have that feeling of being the only one. When I feel good about myself, I'm kinder and more compassionate to others. Thank you, Delaney, Kelsey, and Taylor for helping me. And I'm sure many others feel better about themselves. You're making the world a better place, one podcast at a time. And on top of all that, you're funny. Oh, Minnie, thank you so, so much for this. I really appreciate you taking the time to leave a review. And yeah, depending on where you're listening in our catalog of episodes. There's going to be some episodes with me, Kelsey, and Taylor on there, some with me and Kelsey, some with just me, some with just Kelsey. So there's just a, a whole host of um, different topics and uh, you know different dynamics and stuff like that that you can tune into. And I just really appreciate this so much. I love being able to speak to you um, uh, individually and, and, and say thank you because I don't get to do that a whole lot. Uh, so yeah, if you want to leave an iTunes review, you can do that. It takes like, I don't know, under a minute, you go to your Apple podcast app, you click some stars, you leave a sentence or an emoji or whatever you want to do, and it'll get read on the show. We're pretty much all caught up with iTunes reviews. So if you're thinking, oh, they'll probably never read mine or, you know, mine won't get selected. Um, yeah, we're, we're pretty much all caught up. So it, it might get read like next episode. Okay. Um, I think that's it. I've done all the things and I've said all the things. Thank you so much for tuning in today. I hope this episode helped you as much as it did uh, help me. And I will talk to you next week. Bye. Thank you for tuning in to the Self Helpless Podcast. You can find our Patreon community, merch, and other goodies at selfhelplesspodcast.com. We'd be thrilled if you left an iTunes review, shared this episode with a friend, or post about it on Instagram and tag at selfhelplesspodcast so we can repost you and say hi. Thanks, everyone.